Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Romans and chapter 13, and we'll read through the whole chapter. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not the terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honour to whom honour. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfil its lusts. So this morning we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. And and on recent occasions we've been considering chapters 12 and 13. And in them we've noted a progression. In the early part of chapter 12 we considered how believers should relate to each other as mutually dependent members of one body. We then noticed how Paul developed this by considering how this begins to impact on how we relate to those outside the body. And by the time we get to chapter 13, Paul's concern has very much shifted to addressing how his readers are to relate to the world and its governing authorities in particular. And last time we focused very much on this issue. And so before moving on to look at the second half of chapter 13, I would just like to summarise some of the points that we considered. 
Firstly, Paul instructs his readers that governing authorities are instituted and appointed by God. Governing authorities are therefore his servants who have been delegated some of his authority for the administration of human affairs and therefore to oppose governing authorities is to oppose God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment of themselves, Paul writes in verse 2. God has founded human governments to minister to the needs of humanity. And just as in a small family, rules and penalties are necessary, how much more so in larger communities, states and nations for the ordering and functioning of society? And this involves ordering society so that good things can grow and flourish and evil, vice and crime can be prevented or at least restrained. So in order to carry out this function, a government must therefore have the authority and the means to carry out its God's given, its God's given responsibilities. And this is particularly apparent in its responsibility to enforce law and order and to appropriately punish criminals. In verse 4, Paul writes... He does not bear the sword in vain. Rulers are therefore God's servant to execute wrath upon the ungodly and preserve moral law and government for the good of all. So it's important that believers do pray for and seek to support human government. And this was a point made clear last time when we considered the letter written by Jeremiah to God's people during their exile in Babylon. He wrote, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. As God's people, we are, as far as possible, to take a full and active role in society, remembering to pray for its peace and prosperity. And we saw last time in the lives of Daniel and his three companions how diligently they studied in order to prepare themselves for a life of service in the administration of government, even though it was the government of an ungodly and pagan society. And as a consequence of their diligence, they were appointed to high office, where they could so influence government policy that God's people could indeed grow and prosper. We noted also that for all its faults, all the faults of first century Roman society, it was a place in which the church could function and prosper in the things of God. The very existence of a large church composed of a congregation that were predominantly, though not exclusively, Gentile converts, makes it self-evident that the church could evangelise and live out their faith relatively free of opposition or persecution from outside. And when we take the letter as a whole, Paul does not focus his, his attention on external pressures. His major concern is with the internal affairs of the church. Now, having emphasised how the church should support human government, one thing that I did not pay much attention to last time, which I need to remedy here, are the warnings that Paul gave in the first half of the chapter. A little earlier I mentioned the warning that to resist government is to resist God. Well, to that, Paul added that government holds no fear to those who do good, for those who do what is right, but only to those who do what is evil or do what is wrong. 
He then goes on to stress the importance of fulfilling one's civic duties, such as the paying of taxes and treating those in authority with due respect and honour. So this immediately causes one to ask why Paul gave these warnings. And surely the most reasonable explanation must be that some from within the fellowship of the Roman church were participated in, in some form of illegal protest against the authorities that involved withholding taxes and disrespecting their authority. Now we cannot be so sure though about what they were protesting. Now I will tentatively suggest one or two possibilities. It may have had something to do with the fact that Roman society was built on slavery. Or it may even have been due to the fact that Roman society was characterised by immorality and idolatry. However, such suggestions need to be held only lightly as we have no way of telling exactly what it was. But it may well be that some Christians felt justified in making some form of protest against the authorities on these issues. But these involved breaking the law and showing disrespect. And whatever reason for this protest, Paul's instruction is clear that they were wrong to do so in this manner and that they needed to stop. Now we did consider last time where God's people have a duty to resist authority and even to break the law. You see, although God appoints a governing authority and makes his wisdom available to them, he never imposes his will upon them. Their compliance to his will is always, therefore, with their full knowledge and willing consent. They therefore are free not to govern in accordance with his will. And therefore, God is not responsible for how they choose to act. So in circumstances where a ruler com commands what God forbids, such as the compulsory worship of a false god, or when a ruler forbids what God commands, such as the preaching of the gospel, or meeting together for Christian worship, a Christian has a duty to obey God even if it means breaking the law. However, even in those circumstances, there is a manner in which we are to make our protests, as was clearly evident both in the stands made by Daniel and his companions and by the apostles in first century Jerusalem. When making such a stand, they did so respectfully and did nothing to either ridicule or disrespect those in authority. In making it clear that we must obey God rather than man, we need to do so with dignity, respecting the person and office of those who govern. Now, before moving on to the second half of the chapter, I want to make one final point about this, section, this first section. From what we have read so far, it is implicit that the primary purpose of the church is not for political protest, however justified the cause may appear to be. Neither is its primary purpose to be a vehicle for social action. Now, one might legitimately argue that the church should exercise a prophetic voice of warning to governing authorities. Indeed, some from among the body may even be called to such a ministry and others to support them. And when considering this point, I thought of Peter Smith, who visited us at Gateway a few years back as an example of someone called to such a ministry. You may recall he campaigns on behalf of the unborn at the UN. Important as this work is, it is not and should not become the primary function of the church to campaign for legitimate and good causes. If it were to become so, the church would simply be swamped and never get on with the business of fulfilling its purpose. 
And it's equally true that the primary function of the church is not to become involved in social action. Again, someone might argue, well, didn't Jesus tell us to be salt and light in this world? And being salt means causing good things to grow and preventing bad things from spreading. Isn't that all about social action? They might illustrate their point by referring to the work of Wilberforce in his campaign to abolish slavery, or indeed the work of the likes of Spurgeon in London and George Muller in Bristol on behalf of homeless children and orphans. Now, without in any way denying the importance and significance of their work, it still needs to be understood that these things are secondary and consequential upon the church fulfilling its primary function. So what is the primary function of the church? Well, I can summarise it for you in three words. It's to glorify God. Now, I'm sure that nobody here would disagree with that statement. But do we really understand what it means to glorify God? Now, the first thing we need to understand is what's meant by the phrase, the glory of God. Put simply, it means all that he is and all that he has done. So one way in which we glorify God is in the hymns and songs we sing to express our heartfelt praise to him. And this is why the content of those hymns and songs is so important, for they should reflect who God is and tell of what he has done. Another very important way of glorifying God is in the way we either preach the gospel or at least how we support that work. For in preaching the gospel, we are making known to an unbelieving world who God is and what he has done. A third and equally important way we are to glorify God is in fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice he did not say, go and get decisions for Christ, go and make converts. Important as this is, it's only the beginning of discipleship. Disciples are people who live under discipline. They are people who live under God's discipline. So what is the purpose of this discipleship? Discipleship involves us being transformed and made like Jesus. Put another way, God has adopted us into his family and by actively participating in the life of his family, we will increasingly bear the family likeness. Now this is what I believe Paul is addressing in verses 8 to 10. The essence of God's character is love. John, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.16, God is love. If we are his disciples, that love will be increasingly experienced and become increasingly evident in our inner character and our outward conduct. And it is in this way that we glorify God. When his moral character increasingly and experientially is reflected in our lives, we glorify God. Jesus said, By this shall all men know you are my disciples, by the way you love one another. And he also said, If you love me, you will obey my commands. Now let's just read verses 8 to 10 once more. Oh, nothing... Oh, sorry, owe no one anything except to love one another. 
For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. So in these verses, Paul speaks of love, the law, and the relationship of believers to them. He makes clear that those who love with God's love will keep his commandments and thus fulfil the law. Now first, I need to explain what this does not mean. It does not mean that having been saved from the penalty of sin, Christians must now keep the law through their own efforts. What Paul is describing here is the new way in which God's people relate to the law. Now this will require some explanation. So the best place to start will be by going back to the beginning. And I mean this quite literally. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, God has revealed in his word how he created a perfect world through a succession of events over a six-day period, the culmination and pinnacle of which was the creation of mankind in his image. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, it means that man was made to portray and perfectly reflect the moral character of God in his inner character and outward behaviour. So if we had a DVD recording of the lives of Adam and Eve before the fall, we would see what God is like by studying their attitudes and observing their behaviour. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. They sought to become independent of God and to define their own standards of morality. And as a consequence, the image of God in them was shattered and their lives no longer portrayed what God is like. However... God did not abandon them. And as we read in Genesis chapter 3, he gave them a promise of a future hope of redemption through the seed of the woman. And we now know that this was a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, during the time between the giving and the fulfilment of that promise, God gave the law through Moses. And there are two questions that we need to answer concerning the giving of the law. What was its purpose and what was its effect? Let's firstly deal with its purpose. The Bible makes it very clear that people cannot keep the law. So we need to understand why not, and equally importantly, why God gave a law that none of us could keep. Now, our inability to keep the law is defined in the Bible as sin. In his first epistle, the, uh, the Apostle John wrote... Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. However, in this letter to the Romans, Paul gives a slightly, or says this in a slightly different way. And I'm sure it's a verse you know very well, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the literal meaning of the word sin comes from, comes from the sport of archery, and it means to miss the target. Now, the target we miss, according to Paul, is the glory of God. But the target we miss, according to John, is keeping the law. So the logical conclusion is that the law, as given in the Ten Commandments, and the glory of God must in some way represent the same thing. 
And indeed they do, for they both reveal the moral character of God. Therefore, they both reveal what mankind was intended to be like when we were created in God's image. So the law was given to reveal what God is like, and therefore what man is supposed to be like. However, the effect of the law is to expose the failure of mankind to portray the moral character of God. Not only does the law expose the extent of our failure, it also makes known the sheer impossibility of us ever becoming what we were created to be by our own efforts. Now some throughout history have thought that they could not only keep the Ten Commandments, but also deluded themselves into thinking that they were doing so. And some of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus met were like this. However, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that the Ten Commandments covered not only outward conduct, but also inner attitudes. You see, it's not enough, therefore, to make it through life without succumbing to the temptation of of indulging in an illicit affair. Jesus made it clear that if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. And also, we, we may well go through life without ever physically committing an act of murder. But Jesus said that anyone who is angry with his brother without just cause has broken that commandment and therefore is in danger of judgment. So when we realise that the Ten Commandments cover inner attitudes and not simply outward action, we begin to realise our complete helplessness of ever becoming what we were supposed to be by our own resources. We realise it's simply not in our nature. As Paul made clear in his letter to the Galatians, no one was ever justified by the law. Galatians 2.16 The law makes us aware of, uh, aware of what we were supposed to be like and our failure to be what we were created to be. However, knowing what we were supposed to be like and knowing the extent of our failure does not either empower us or enable us to do anything about it. The law makes us aware of our sin, but it's never saved anyone from their sin. So God gave the law to reveal his glory to us. In revealing his moral character, he was showing us what we were supposed to be like and making it known to us our complete inability to become so by our own resources. Now, he did not do this to humiliate or condemn us. He did so in order to put it right. He wants to get us cleaned up and sorted out. And in order to put right our problem, he first needed to make us aware of the cause and extent of our problem. We need to know the bad news before we can receive the good news. Now there are two more aspects of the law that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount that we need to consider this morning. In Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus said, For assuredly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. So here Jesus is speaking of the eternal nature of the law. As stated earlier, the law reveals the moral character of God. And since God is eternal, so too is his moral character. Jesus also said that he did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfil it. 
And it is this aspect we need to really understand. And there are two senses in which Jesus fulfills the law. Firstly, he has fulfilled the law on our behalf in order to pay in full the penalty for the sin of mankind. God entered into time and space and took on human flesh for that very purpose. He came to give his life as the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind. The Apostle John wrote, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What does he mean, we beheld his glory? It means, for the first time in human history, since the fall of mankind, the moral character of God was perfectly portrayed in the life of a human being, and John and the other apostles were witnesses to it. And Jesus perfectly portrayed the moral character of God because he is God. In the, in the Bible, the moral character of God is often spoken of as light. And unlike Adam and Eve, who merely reflected that light, Jesus was the source of it. Because he perfectly portrayed the moral character of God throughout his life, Jesus was able to make the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind. He was the fulfilment of Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The fact that his sacrifice was fully acceptable to God was evidenced by the historical fact that on the third day after his crucifixion, God raised him from the dead and as a consequence, we can be reconciled to God. Now this is the first sense of how Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. But there is also another sense in which he does so that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 8 that we must not overlook. Romans 8 Verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here Paul writes about an ongoing fulfilment that takes place in us as we walk in the Spirit. He mentions this again in his letter to the Colossians. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this hope of glory that Paul is referring to? Well, our hope of glory is that the moral character of God will be fully restored to human experience, that it will be fully restored in your life and in my life. Our hope is that we will be recipients of it and experience it in our daily lives. So how does this come about? How is it achieved if we cannot produce it within ourselves? It's by the indwelling presence of Christ. It's Christ in you. Only Jesus can live the Christian life. Only he can fulfil the law. Our hope of glory is that he does this in us and in us through us. 
And it is in this way that the righteous requirements of the law are met in those who walk in the Spirit. That is, those who walk in active cooperation with him. We cannot produce this in ourselves, but the good news is that he can and will produce it in us. Now you might well ask, how does this work? Well, let's return to uh, Romans chapter 13. In verse 9, Paul refers to five of the Ten Commandments. He begins, you shall not commit adultery. When the Holy Spirit indwells our hearts, since God is completely faithful, then it follows that we will become so too. He goes on, you shall not commit murder. Since God does not murder or get angry without just cause, then this too will become true of us. You shall not bear false witness. Since God never lies, then we will begin to find that it becomes increasingly difficult for us to do so too. Do you see what's happening? The commands that once condemned us become the fulfilment of the promise that the moral character of God is being restored to human experience. And it will become increasingly evident in our experience too. Now note carefully in verse 10, Paul states that love does no harm to a neighbour. You see, every time one of those commands is broken, it brings harm to a neighbour. Murder robs a person of their life. Stealing robs them of their property and possessions. Bearing false witness robs them of their good name. It robs them of their reputation. Committing adultery robs a person of their home, dignity and the purity of the one flesh relationship that God gave to them. Now the love described here comes from the Greek word agape. It means a consistent act of the will towards another's lasting good. So when the Holy Spirit indwells our heart, since God is love, we will increasingly desire to do good to our neighbour and not harm. Now when writing this, I deliberately chose to use words like increasingly and become to emphasise that this is a progressive work in us. We don't perfectly reflect God's moral character the moment we become Christians. He meets the righteous requirements of the law in those who walk according to the Spirit. So this involves us remaining in him. It also involves the outworking of discipleship within the body. His disciples are under his discipline. And this discipline is not always easy or pleasant. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. However, the motivation for this discipline is the love of a heavenly father who wants and knows what is good for us. And what loving parent would not want their children to become content and not to covet? What loving parent is not hurt or disappointed when their children tell lies or take what does not belong to them or is angry with another without just cause? So when, we may well ask, is this process completed? When is it that God's moral character will be fully restored 
to our experience. The promise in the scriptures is that it is when Jesus returns to this planet at his second coming. As the Apostle John writes, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And it is in this sense that Paul talks about our salvation being nearer than when we first believed in verse 11. There he is referring to the completion of our salvation when we shall be like him. In the meantime, his glory is formed in us progressively, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, there are two mistakes that Christians can make in relation to all of this. Some try to produce God's moral character in themselves by trying to keep the law. And when they do this, they are well on the way to becoming self-righteous religious hypocrites. Others go to the opposite extreme, believing that they are to be totally passive in the process. Walking in the Spirit means to give our full and active cooperation in response to the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And right the way through chapters 12 to 16, there are imperatives. It's full of do's and don'ts. And in these final few verses of chapter 13, Paul uses the illustration of clothing to make this point. There are things we are to put off and clothes that we are to put on. However, the first imperative that he gives in verse 11 is for them to wake up. The church at Rome was effectively asleep. It had stopped making progress in its primary purpose. God was no longer being glorified in the day-to-day activity of the church. Their progress in reflecting his glory had effectively ceased. And we know why. The church was in dispute and it was in danger of splitting over the issue of whether God had replaced Israel as his people with the Gentile church. And all the infighting had the effect of putting them to sleep as far as as fulfilling their primary purpose of glorifying God was concerned. And one of the things we need to realise that when the church stops moving forward, it does not stand still. It's a bit like someone rowing across a river. If you stop rowing towards your intended destination, you do not stay in the same place. You end up drifting in whatever direction the river takes you. And this was evident in the Roman church at that time. It was drifting. Some were beginning to teach that you need to keep the law by your own efforts. And in so doing, they were increasingly being recognised from those both within and those outside the church as self-righteous religious hypocrites. You can read about that in Romans 2 and Romans 7. Others were getting into good works through social action and inappropriate political protest. If we are truly to be sought and light in this world, this must come as a consequence of the inner working of God's Spirit in our hearts in order to perform the work that he has prepared in advance for us. 
Now this was clearly not the case in the Roman church, since they were getting into trouble as a consequence of disrespecting those in authority and withholding taxes. However, Paul's concern in these final verses of this chapter is with the general drift among some who were beginning to take on once more the behaviour of the society from which they had been saved. And in particular, Paul mentions drink, sex and social relationships. He instructs them to cast off works of darkness, clearly identifying these as revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy. He concludes by warning them to make no provision for the flesh. And we need to be ruthless in our repudiation of it. Do not give opportunity to it. And when we pray, lead us not into temptation, it follows that we need to take responsibility to avoid putting ourselves in harm's way. However, the Christian life is not all about don'ts. There are things to do. There are clothes to put on. And Paul instructs them to put on the armour of light. Now, the mention of armour tells us that the Christian life is not easy. We're in a battle. Light is referring to moral light, about which I've said much already today. He tells them to walk properly as in the day, meaning to have nothing shameful that we would want to hide under the cover of darkness. And finally, he tells them to put on Jesus Christ. This is a Greek phrase which brings with it the meaning of entering fully into his views, to be wholly on his side, to give oneself fully into his service, and by imitating him in all things, all in the context of a close personal relationship. So what of us at Gateway Christian Fellowship? And I ask this question not for us to indulge in introspection, but rather as a prayer. It is God's perspective that we should seek to understand. You see, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we read of how Jesus walks among his churches. And he knows all there is to know about them. He knows their strengths and their weaknesses, their resources and their limitations, their opportunity and their opposition, and also their works and their attitude to it. He can distinguish between the dedicated and the lukewarm, and those who serve out of a sense of duty from those whose service to him is their first love. May our prayer that he will give us his perspective on how we serve and worship him at Gateway. Let us make it our prayer that he will reveal to us his plans, what he is pleased with and what we need to change. And just as he graciously did in the letters to to the seven churches, let our prayer be to reverently ask him, are we fulfilling the primary purpose to glorify God as his church? Amen.